0: Yes. Did you hear that? Some kid, if, I don't know if I'd be able to see you if you're the child and you raise your hand, but if you're the parent holding the child, just raise a hand, Let me show me where that is. Yes, yes, that mom brave enough to just go ahead and say, yep, that was my kid. So yes, to everything George just said anyway, so. Get to talk about Jesus, and do you say yes to that? do you say yes to that? Yes, yes. yeah, thanks, Because I was about to start calling out some names, you know Steve Lockwood do you call do you say yes to that? you know, Jim and Nancy Mikowski, do you say yes to that? Yes, yeah, Jim gave me the thumbs up anyway, all right, get to talk about Jesus. Um, we're in John chapter 5 so you can go ahead and turn there to John chapter 5 if you'd like (laughs) and it's a long chapter 47 verses you could write a volume on every verse in that chapter and we're not going to do that today I'm not going to do that today um, the first 17 verses are a story, and it's an unusual story in that it's a little bit longer, multiple people, multiple places, multiple conversations. And I want to, today, kind of give you a little bit different twist than I'm guessing most of you have had before on this text that I guess is relatively well known. But what we wanna do is we wanna see Jesus more clearly. We want to know Jesus for who he is in the same way that, you know, here at our church according to the values as we state them and we number them one through five, we have number one as we want to know God for who he is and so we want to know the Son of God who is God himself for who he is. do We want to know Jesus for who he is. That's kind of the big idea. But what I really am hoping to do now, especially now second service, is to just kind of walk through this story, these 17 verses. Then we'll kind of cap it with verse 18 where Jesus is accused of making himself equal with God. Well, for heaven's sake, it's because he is God. He's acting like who he is. In the first seventeen verses, and so then we'll jump from there, uh, and just say a couple of things about how it is that he will act like God down the road for us and for all people, and then after that, we'll we'll take a look at what he offers, and it's going to be sweet. On Friday mornings. Uh, Virtually every Friday morning, with the exception of the summertime, uh, at 6 a.m., I meet with the men's Bible study. And it is just such a blessed time. It just has been. It seems like as the years go by, it just gets uh, more and more rich uh, with the kind of hearts that the men are bringing into that community. I know that it's early, 6 a.m. On a Friday morning, but for the first time ever, at least as I have preached, uh, I kind of went through this text with the men on Friday morning uh, in prep for our time this morning. And so I'm saying that because I want to give a shout out to those guys and just say to you that if your husband leans over and says, hey, that was my point on Friday morning, you can go ahead and believe him on that one, okay? And uh, you can kind of praise your man that way and that'd be a good thing, all right? So before we get into John 5, verse 1, it, I think it's critical that we understand what the text isn't going to say about this man Jesus targets. It is critical to see what the text doesn't say about this man. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. But it's critical to see that this man does not have a parent crying out on his behalf to have him or to see him healed, the way we looked at last week, end of chapter four, with that man and his son, okay? This man does not have a group of friends who have said, you know what, you're lame. You can't make it into the waters soon enough and so we're going to take you and we're going to take you up onto a roof. We're going to cut a hole in a roof and lower you right down into the living room so that you are face to face with Jesus because we love you and we want to see him heal you. This man doesn't have that. This man is not Bartimaeus. In the city of Jericho and Jesus and he's with a crowd and he's walking by and Bartimaeus yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This man isn't crying out. This man is not Zacchaeus so that he's short in stature, but he's just got to see Jesus. And so the only way that that's going to happen is for him to climb a tree and, and, and to look out over the tops of the crowds, And then Jesus steps up to the tree and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and get down from there because I must stay at your house today. This man is not an emotionally crushed woman You see in Luke chapter seven who just was so full of love for Christ beyond what he had done for her. She was in love with him and just who he was such that she walked into a house crammed with Pharisees, cried with his feet, with her tears, and washed them. This man was not a publicly humiliated woman that we'll read about in John chapter eight in another two, three weeks, I guess. Dragged out into the street, accused, and Jesus came to her aid. This man was not a father who desperately ran to try to find Jesus to see his daughter saved. This man was not Jairus, of whom you read about in Mark chapter five and elsewhere. So that Jesus made his way along the road. The servant came and told the dad, don't bother the teacher anymore, your little girl is dead. And Jesus said, let's keep walking. Her life is in my hand. Do do we understand, by the way, that the lives of our children are in the hand of God? There's perfect hope to be had there. The life of my son is in the hand of God. The life of my daughter, the life of my son-in-law, and the life of my daughter-in-law are in the hand of God. And this man, by the way, is not the same man as we will read about in another few months in John chapter nine, of whom it said, this man was born blind that he might display the works of God. It wasn't the result of his sin, And you don't see it cropping up in his attitude in John chapter 9 either. In John chapter 9, that guy goes out and he says, hey, in answer to all these questions that you're asking me, Pharisees, teachers of the law, Jewish leaders, in answer to all these questions, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. And since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind, If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He'd do nothing. That's John chapter nine. It's not John chapter five. Sometimes, maybe, without realizing it, we read these stories where Jesus steps in and he he addresses, or maybe someone hollers out for him, but he's interacting with them and he saves them somehow. He heals them. And perhaps their soul, they're saved in their soul, which is what he wants to do. And not just heal bodies, but save souls. But sometimes as we're reading through the text, we want to say, well, isn't that person whom he addresses his care to such a wonderfully lovable person, and that somehow that person deserved what it was that came his or her way. We love Jesus, but you know, our hearts just go out to that person as well. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, by the way, because these are people who are desperate. Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus, the woman at the well from a few weeks back, These are people who are desperate. But sometimes we think, maybe even subconsciously, that they deserve the kindness that came their way in Christ. This guy this morning, I wanna just suggest, and I'm gonna try to show us in the text, didn't deserve it, and at not one point in his interaction with Jesus, does he come across, at least in my reading, as a guy who got what he deserved. He got healed, but you'll see that he didn't necessarily get saved. When you get to heaven someday, you check and see if he's there. I don't know that he will be. And so we'll just have to see. All right, so let's look. You're in John chapter five, right? Here we go. So it's John chapter five. In verse one, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So we don't know what feast that was um, and unless it was Purim, Purim, which, uh, you remember the Feast of Purim that was um, instituted there at the end of uh, the book of Esther, actually, but that it was not instituted by God. It's the only feast in the Jewish calendar that was not instituted by God. But I'm not reading anywhere where it suggests that perhaps that's what Jesus is responding to. So whatever the feast was, it had been something that had been given by the Lord there at Sinai, or where have you, and that Jesus is responding as obedient on this occasion. So that's what we get here in the first verse, that he's involved, he's involved in the affairs of the country and the community, and that he's obedient to his father. Catch that in verse one, verse two. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So it, it's defining there what's, what's, what qualifies as invalid, blind, lame, paralyzed. It's not an exhaustive list, meant to just give us the gist. But see a group of people who are desperate, a multitude, and they want to be healed. And so they're there. and there's a sense of urgency, and I'm guessing that they're feeding off each other. You know, if it's a race to the waters, when the waters get stirred, then there's a lot of anxiety that's feeding off, you know, one another, and who's gonna make it, and how can I get closest, and you know, who's on the lookout, and they're there, and that's the attitude. Verse five, one man was there. Wait, hold on a second. We just skipped verse four. Did we just skip verse four? <laughs> okay. In my my, my, my Bible does not have a verse four. So, let, 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 me, let me ask, you. if you have a Bible in your lap and it has a verse four right there in the text, raise your hand, just raise your hand. Like, like get, get some courage and put your hand up in the air. Okay, like maybe a quarter. It was a little bit more last service. Okay, so maybe a quarter of us to a third, I'm guessing, from the look of it. Um, so why is it that in some Bibles it's there and in other Bibles it isn't? What's going on with that? So in my ESV, which is the version that we're asked to preach from and, and for the most part teach from here at this church... There's a little footnote, and in the footnote it says, uh, for verse four, some manuscripts insert holy or in part, quote, waiting for the moving of the water for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now... Why in some Bibles and not in others, okay? So here's the thing. For those of you who have a Bible in your lap and that verse is included in the actual text, it's because that team of translators who is in charge of your version, whatever that version is, thought there are enough ancient manuscripts to justify putting in the verse, to keep the verse within the text. For those of us who have another Bible, it said, let's put it in a footnote. It's because we've thought that there aren't quite enough instances in ancient texts to go ahead and put that verse in here. So we're not sure if that's divinely inspired. We're not sure if that's God-breathed or not, just on the basis of the ancient manuscripts. Here's what we are sure of that to either include it or to not include it, it's not going to compromise the text in any way. That's the important thing. Do you see that? It's not going to compromise the text in any way. And furthermore, I'm going to jump ahead just here for a second to verse 7. In verse seven, where, where the guy says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Now, there's no dispute about verse seven being divinely inspired. So that what that lets us know is that this idea of an angel coming down and being stirred up, whether it was tradition, whether it was actually happen, happening, whether it was just superstition, it's what the people believed the people the desperate people who were on hand they believed that and that's for sure what god wants us to know in the text and you catch it in verse 7 with or without verse 4 okay so just kind of tuck that away and have that there now verse 5 one man was there who had been an invalid For thirty-eight years, and in in ancient times, he's he's over the hill, you know. If he's if he's been an invalid for thirty-eight years, he's he's old, (laughs) and he's there, and he's and he's at the pool. And when Jesus saw him, verse six, lying there, and knew. That he had already been there a long time. So that's one of those phrases. Let's learn to detect as frequently as possible that phrase, Jesus saw him. Jesus saw her. Jesus remembered him. God remembered her. Those sorts of phrases. What needs to come home to the heart is not just that, okay, okay, Jesus visibly saw the guy sitting right over there, but that Jesus saw this guy and knew in his omniscience, not only that the guy was old and that he'd had this disease or malady for however long, but that he knows that guy. When he sees, he knows, he knows fully, he knows perfectly every soul, every life, all the history, every relationship, He sees, and so he sees. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? You know, for however long, there seems to have been a lot, a lot, a lot of kind of psychologizing of that particular question. And the first thing I want to say is this, that there are times, well, not, not every question that Jesus asked was meant to immediately, just kind of sublimely teach but that sometimes Jesus asked a question just to kick off a conversation, just to engage. Not looking to teach, he's just looking to engage. So Jesus coming in, definitely targets the man. And he goes over and from my reading, it would come across more this way. So I see you and there, there you're sitting there and I see the pool over there and you're, wanting to get in that pool, aren't you? You're, you're wanting to get healed. And by the way the guy responds, his answer was like, well, yeah. I mean, he doesn't say dude. <laughs> he says sir, but that's, that use of the word sir is pretty close to dude. Yeah, man. You know, like, yeah. That's why I'm here. That's why we're all here. Do you want... To be healed. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So I always get beat. Where do you think he's putting his faith, by the way? Last week we had a sermon on sufficient versus insufficient faith. Where's he placing his faith? Seems to me he's placing his faith in the pool, right? That they all were. Not a poor kiddo. And while I'm going down another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Here's what I was looking forward to sharing about most. This guy does nothing, I think, to warrant Jesus targeting him. And I think we're about to see that not only does he do nothing, but I had one commentator, in fact, uh, uh, the commentary that that we're being encouraged to cite, or not to cite, but to reference, uh, more, more than any other, describe this guy as a crotchety old man. What? Jesus targets this guy regardless, and that's what I want us to see this morning. Jesus targets this guy. We want to know Jesus for who he is. Jesus is the kind of guy, the kind of man who will target people Even if, they're not, even if they're not lovable, he targets the unlovable. I mean, don't you thank God for that? He targets the unlovable. Now this guy, as I just said a moment ago, it doesn't give an indication in the story that he got saved, that he moved into that eternal life-giving relationship with Jesus, That didn't save Jesus from stepping into his life and giving him something that he very much needed and evidently something that he very much wanted because he's there, poolside, wanting to get to the water first. Let's have that not just inform our idea of who Jesus is, that he targets The unlovely, but just didn't rejoice in that. I mean, do you have unlovely people in your life? Yes, is the answer to that. Do you have people in your life who are jerks? I mean, I I have people in my life who are jerks. Not many, thank you, Lord, but some. How do I pray for them? What's 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 my regard for them? When I just know what's going to come, just the attitude that's going to come my way almost every time I interact with them. Even so, what's my attitude toward them? Where do they stand in my prayer life? You know, will I pray, Father, you targeted me when I was a jerk. Just have mercy there. So, where are we at? I love that Jesus is a good enough God to force his grace upon people. All right, we'll keep reading here. This next paragraph. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So what they're, what they're wanting to accuse of there is, um, is, is not so much that you have broken the Ten Commandment, although that's what they wanted uh, this guy to kind of take home, to feel the guilt of you've broken the commandment. But what they had done was they'd taken the commandments. They'd take what Moses uh, had received there at Sinai and they said, you know, we're gonna help the people. So we're gonna kind of make a lot of commentary on this. We're gonna call it the Mishnah. Um, And and so we're going to get very detailed. And for instance, on the Sabbath, when it comes to this idea that we cannot, this commandment that we cannot work on the Sabbath, but that we must rest, well, there are some things that just need to get done on the Sabbath. And so we're going to try to make provision for that. But there are very definitely some other things, such as mat carrying, that ought not to be done on the Sabbath. And so we're going to make provision for that also. And we're going to do so in detail. And so when these guys come back, these Jewish leaders come back to this man who had been healed and they accuse him of breaking the law, what he's really breaking is their commentary on the law. But that's a big deal because we're in charge and we don't like the fact that you've stepped out and you've you've done this. And so now you're telling us that someone else told you to do this? Who told you to do this? But that's the next verses. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. My suggestion here, and you may disagree with this, But as I'm going through and I'm looking for the tone of the text, the overarching strain, who is this guy? My take on that is that the guy just blamed Jesus. The guy just blamed him. When he says, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And he had to respond in verse 13, I don't know. I mean, doesn't it make sense that there would have even been a moment, just even a moment, between get up, take up your bed and walk and Here where it says, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And wouldn't you ask, who are you? But evidently this guy didn't. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward Jesus found him. Again, verse 14. So Jesus finds him the first time. Jesus finds him the second time. Jesus. know Jesus for who he is. Jesus is, you know, among other things, many countless other things. He's the one who finds. He's the one who when he seeks for you, he will find you. What state will he find your heart in? But when he seeks you, he will find you. And he will find me. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. I've healed you. Then he says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So here's something that we got to say and something that it's going to say later in John chapter 9. And that was that when that man in John chapter 9... It was asked about him. Who sinned? You know, was it this man who sinned that he's blind? Or was it his parents who sinned that he is blind? The word comes back, no one sinned in John chapter nine. No one sinned, but that this guy uh, has had this blindness his entire life so that the works of God may be displayed to men and women. That's why but not the case here necessarily in John chapter five. We can say that it it is not automatic for the maladies that we suffer to have been the result of the sin we have personally committed. That's true, but not necessarily. And that's what Jesus is saying here, I think. Okay, when he's saying to this man, you're well now, but don't sin anymore that nothing worse may happen to you. Don't go back to the sin that was responsible for having put you into the middle of this disease or whatever it was you're suffering from. Don't go back. So I want to say that it is not automatic, but sometimes, sometimes, and that's something for me personally that I need to take to heart. Right? I don't want to be careful with that. You know. Father keep me from my sin. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Is he telling? Is he tattling? Is he narking? on Jesus, did that come across as it was Jesus who did it? And is that kind of attitude motivated by having been confronted by Jesus about his immorality? Because couldn't it possibly be, you know, there in the, in the preceding verse, couldn't it be, um, just lost my thought. I hate it when that happens. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. I don't like Jesus. Even though he healed me, I really like that sin. I told that story before, and I'm only gonna mention it again because you know one of my guys on Friday morning mentioned it to me. Um, actually called me from his car to talk to me about it. Um, that uh, years ago, I just remember sharing the gospel. It was with a colleague of my wife, Kim's. And Kim and I are there in the living room and we're just talking with her and uh, you know, laid out the gospel. She was a real smart gal. And, uh, and we're talking back. She had some great questions. And so we got to the end and I said, so what do you think? I mean, is this, make a decision. It'd be awesome to see you make a decision on Jesus Christ right now. And she said, no, I get it. I, 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 I totally get the gospel. I understand. Thank you for answering my questions. And the answer is no. <laughs> and I said, why? And you know, she, said? she was honest. She said, because I like my sin too much. I like my sin too much. Maybe that's where this guy was. I don't know. But do you see the grace of Jesus to find him a second time and to warn him? you see that Jesus is this way. Let's know Jesus for who he is. He came, he found the guy a second time. Even knowing that the guy was gonna go back and tell, he found the guy, he found the guy. Be careful. You are in this life and it's not just about your body, it is about your soul. Be careful so you see the grace of Jesus there. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father, he says, my father, not our father, not your father, my father. He's in no uncertain terms, he's letting them know I am God. My father Is working until now, sustaining the universe, not six days a week, but seven, sustaining the universe. And I am working all along with him in the work of creation, in the work of maintenance over the course of um, the history of the universe. (laughs) I'm the one who sustains and I am at work right down to me ordering that guy, having healed him, to pick up his mat and walk away. I am ordering the universe. I am at work. My father and I are always on the same page. Beautiful. And then verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Two more things real quick, just in the next section there. Verse 22, check this out, about Jesus. Because we want to know Jesus not just for who he is, but for who he will be. Verse 22, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Judgment. That the Son of God, Jesus who is the Christ, will be judge. That's a role that he will play and he will play it for all of us. Okay? He'll play it for all of us. It says in 2 Corinthians 5 that all of us are gonna need to appear before that seat someday. The only difference between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ is that for those who are in Christ, there exists no condemnation. That God is able to look at those who are in Christ and say, I see you there and you are so guilty. But my son has paid for that guilt and I cannot punish sin twice. For me to punish you for guilt that he has already paid the price for is to invalidate his sacrifice on your behalf, and I cannot do that. I would never do that, ever. And so if you have him and he has paid the price for your sin, then you are guiltless. And that is my judgment. And that is Christ exercising that judgment. Not only is he the one there to whom judgment for all people has been given, but that he's doing so in his, in his honor and his glory. Matthew 25 talks about how the angels of heaven will come with him, and that they'll be there, just countless, just praising and worshiping Christ as he judges, as he judges. I look at our current culture and definitions of judgment and and it seems to me to be a fair thing to define judgment currently and culturally this way. That if you say something within my hearing that I don't like, you've judged me. That's, That's pretty flimsy. I just want to say to the glory of Christ, that the day is coming when Jesus himself will say to countless millions, he, will, he must say to countless millions something they don't want to hear. And that that will be to his glory, not to his shame. He won't be embarrassed, he won't cower, but that that will be to his glory and that the angels will be singing on that occasion. Second thing, it's right on the heels of verse 22 and 23, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Knowing Jesus for what he offers. I say to you, whoever hears, whoever, whosoever, Anybody, everybody, come, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into the judgment we were just talking about. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Awesome. So that, that's the kind of Jesus... We're getting to know still, right? That's what he's like. He has this offer, this offer of eternal life, this offer that escapes judgment, this offer that includes life now, not just wait till you die and then some, life today. Life today that means an absence of loneliness. Your life because you have a companion. Somebody who wants you every moment and you can't out want him. Someone who wants to spend not just time with you occasionally but wants to be by your side, wants to be behind you, wants to be out in front of you. Wants you to get to know him. Trent was preaching last week. Wants you to get to know him. Let's let's pray on that note. Father, it's true. Your son Jesus, and you yourself, Father, you want for us to get to know you. You already know us perfectly. You know us perfectly. And you want us. None of us deserves you. Father, truth be told, we are all as undeserving as this man in the story. And yet we pray for ourselves and for those around us, our families, our friends, those in our spheres, at work, wherever, that you would target, that you would be irresistible in your grace. Father, that you would love us enough to come and get our souls, that you would continue, strengthen us, that we would persevere in the faith, that we would keep running to get to know you better and better. Help us to know you for who you are. Help us to know Jesus for who he is. Help us to get to know your spirit, the Holy Spirit for who he is. And to have our lives just exhaustively consist of worship to you as the moments and the hours of our days go by. Father, we want to be all about you. And we pray for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.